three summers ago, we started a seasonal series on the book of Matthew, working through the gospel of Matthew. Um, we started going verse by verse through it in a series that I called The Once and Future King, a nod to the King Arthur book by T.H. White. And after 23 messages, that's a lot of messages in a series, we've made it to Matthew chapter 8. So for the rest of the summer, or at least for the next few months, we're going to be working hopefully through Matthew chapter 8 through 10. We've made it to chapter 7 over three years, and now we're going to try to get it to Matthew 8 through 10 um, over this summer, this year. And I'm calling this Act 3 of the Once and Future King series, The Hands of the King Are Hands of Healing. But before we get into chapter 8, Matthew chapter 8 this morning, we need to have a quick review because some of you weren't here for chapters 1 through 7. And for the rest of us, we've forgotten most of what happened last summer, let alone the summer before that. Remember, there was a pandemic and it wiped out all history and remembrance of things that happened. And so before jumping into this third act of Matthew's gospel, I'm going to do a little bit of review and then we're going to hit just a couple verses in Matthew chapter 8 this morning, and then we'll continue it for the next few weeks through the summer. So, the first thing we need to start with is, we're reading in the Gospel of Matthew, what does the word gospel mean? I think most Americans sitting in churches have a hard time defining the gospel. Like if you sat down with a hundred different Christians in church on Sunday today, I think they would struggle to come up with a gospel definition. Often our preferred atonement theory about why Jesus had to die becomes our deferred explanation of why his death was good. Gospel means good news. It's essentially like, why was Jesus good? What was good about Jesus? Um, and so I think a lot of times we end up talking about why he had to die, which is an important aspect of that, but it isn't the whole story. Atonement, why Jesus had to die, is not the same thing as gospel, why his death and life, burial, resurrection, and ascension was good. Now, a few summers ago, I was working with an organization that brings young adult Christians to Philadelphia to work with nonprofits and churches. And this is their stated goal, to bring the gospel to Philadelphia, to bring the gospel to Philly. And I had done some work with this organization in the past. And so they were bringing this group up a couple summers ago. And they asked me, would you give a little explanation to this group coming up? Because they're mostly from the South, some were from the Midwest, they weren't used to Philly, and they were like, hey, tell them about what they should expect, what they should avoid doing, what they should avoid saying. And so there were a couple hundred students out there, and I got up front and I said, okay, your stated mission is you're bringing the gospel to Philly, can you define the gospel? And so all these hands shot up, and I started calling on people, and I heard all kinds of answers that were true things, but weren't the gospel. Um, I heard things like this, be kind to everyone. Hey, that's a great thing. That is not what the gospel is. The Ten Commandments, I re remember one young person said. I'm like, they're great, but that's not the gospel. Somebody said, accept, believe, and confess. I'm like, okay, accept, believe, confess, what? You know, all these things are good things. And they kept shouting out bible sounding things, Christian-sounding things, church-sounding things. But they weren't really sure. Nobody could give me a confident definition of the gospel. Now, these are people who had taken time off of work, taken time off of school, spent their own money to come here and share the gospel to Philadelphia. But they, we, they were trying to share something they didn't even know how to articulate for themselves. 
When our definition of the gospel is off, our definition of everything else gets slightly off because the gospel is at the center of Christianity. And I think a lot of American Christians are confused about what the gospel is. We're told to share the gospel with our coworkers and our neighbors and our family and our friends, but we're not quite sure what the gospel is because our definition of it is fuzzy, so we're never quite sure if we have shared it or we are sharing it or if we aren't. Many times we are saying good things, even true things, but it's not what the apostles would have called the gospel. It's not what the early Christians would have called the gospel. Uh, gospel the literally is translated from a Greek word that means good news. And the Romans used the word gospel politically, not religiously. The followers of Jesus were making a political statement by calling the story of Jesus good news. They were holding it up as an alternate story about the peace of the world. The way of Jesus, the way that Jesus said humans should live their life was being contrasted with the ways of the Roman Empire and the way that they said you should live your life. Now, this is an inscription found in Preen in modern-day Turkey. This is still there. Well, it's actually been removed and it's in a museum now, but it was found in modern-day Turkey. It refers to Caesar Augustus. Okay, so just stick with me here while I read this ancient inscription they found from the Roman Empire in modern-day Turkey. This is what it says. The birthday of Caesar Augustus has been for the whole world the beginning of the gospel concerning him. The most divine Caesar we should consider equal to the beginning of all things, for when everything was falling into disorder and tending toward dissolution, he restored it once again. He gave the whole world a new aura. Caesar, the common good fortune of all, the beginning of life and vitality, all the cities unanimously adopt the birthday of the divine Caesar as the new beginning of the year. Whereas the providence, which has regulated our whole existence, has brought our life to the climax, climax of perfection in giving us this emperor, Augustus Caesar, who being sent to us and our descendants as savior, has put an end to war, has set all things right, and whereas has become God manifest to us, Caesar has fulfilled all the hopes of earlier times. So when the gospel writers say Jesus is Jesus's arrival, life, death, resurrection and ascension is good news, they're directly contrasting the propaganda of the empire. The Roman Empire is putting up inscriptions that say, hey, good news, Caesar Augustus, God in the flesh is here and is bringing peace and order to the world. And so as the gospel writers are saying, hey, Jesus is actually good news for the world. He's actually savior. He's actually going to end all war and put all things in order and set all things right. You can see how provocative of a statement that was. We only use gospel today in a religious sense, but they were used to it being used in a political propaganda sense. The gospel of Caesar Augustus was what we would call today the Pax Romana, the age of peace in the Roman Empire, which came about during this time into which Jesus was born. The Romans produced peace for some people, not for all, and they always did it through violence and power and oppression. The British chieftain Calgacus, I cannot pronounce that, sorry, said this of the Romans when they reached Britain, they create a desert and they call it peace. It's a very different kind of peace than Jesus creates. The Greek word translated gospel is euangelion, which we translate good news or gospel. 
And it was used at the time of the Roman Empire to herald the good news of the arrival of a kingdom, the reign of a king that brought a war to an end so that all people of the world who surrendered and pledged allegiance to this king would be granted salvation from destruction. Essentially, when Caesar won a war, he said, side with me as your king or I'm going to destroy you. You're going to escape destruction with the kingdom that was just defeated if you side with me. And the gospel writers have picked up on this and said, hey, the old kingdom is passing away. A new kingdom is coming in with King Jesus. It doesn't work like the Roman Empire. It works differently. It doesn't work for violence. It's not just for the rich or the influential. It's for everyone. Side with this king and you'll be saved from the destruction of that king. And so the gospel writers are pulling from all these things that are just used in the known world. These are people who live in the Roman Empire. They're used to how the word gospel is used, and they're inverting it, and they're contrasting it, and they're using it in a provocative way to talk about Jesus. In Matthew's mind, the gospel is the life, the death, the resurrection, and the ascension of Jesus, and that is good news for the entire world because it brings about Jesus' kingdom, and his kingdom will bring the world peace. Not through violence and intimidation and oppression like Rome, but our king will take violence, sin, and death into his own body for us to bring peace. Which brings us to our next definition that we need if we're going to continue our series in Matthew, and that is kingdom. Kingdom comes up over and over again in the book of, or the gospel of Matthew. The kingdom is where God gets what he wants, where his will is done, where his rule and reign are in effect. Remember what Jesus said to pray in the Sermon on the Mount? He said, pray that our Father in heaven's will is done on earth as it is in heaven, that the kingdom of heaven would extend from heaven onto earth. For the gospel writers, it's, it's completely impossible for me to try to compete with an adorable toddler. Like, I should just put her up here on a stand and let her, uh, let her show off. The kingdom is where the rule and reign of God are in effect. For the gospel writer's kingdom, kingdom of heaven, kingdom of God, and just heaven are all synonyms. The salvation we need is to leave the kingdom of darkness and enter into the kingdom of light. Leave the kingdom that's being destroyed and enter into this kingdom that is coming. And that's good news for the entire world because Jesus is good and where he reigns, goodness flourishes and sin and death and decay are banished. When I talk to my friends and my family members who are like, the world's messed up. There's all these shootings. There's all this racism. There's all this poverty. There's all this stuff. I'm like, yes, you're right. It is messed up. And I'm looking forward to the day where Jesus rules and reigns on this earth and sets all wrongs right. We can all get excited about that because we're all looking for a world where these wrong things are set right. In Matthew's mind, the world was once under the reign of King Jesus, and humans rejected that reign, and now we live in a kingdom of darkness. But the king has returned and is returning still to set all wrongs right. The king has been crowned in heaven. That's what he ascended to a throne in heaven. And one day soon that throne will descend to reestablish his rule on earth. Whew, take a breath. We just reviewed Matthew chapter 1 through 4. That was a lot to get through. Everybody's still good? You still with me? Okay, chapter 5 through 7, quick review before we get to chapters 8. Then in chapter 5, Matthew switches gears and he says, okay, he describes what it looks like to live as kingdom people, what we often call disciples or followers of Jesus or believers, students of how Jesus lived and loved. These kingdom people live in the kingdom that is here but not fully realized yet. We live as 
as though Jesus is king of our lives while we wait expectantly for him to become king of our world. And in Matthew 5 through 7, Jesus teaches all these things. Here's a quick overview of what it looks like to live and love like Jesus. If Jesus is our king, we don't insult people, we get reconciled. If Jesus is our king, we don't lust for what we don't have, we radically eliminate barriers to become more like Jesus. If Jesus is our king, we don't flippantly end relationships. We carefully treasure relationships because people are made in the image of God. If Jesus is our king, we don't swear an oath because we're so honest and open, everyone believes what we have to say. If Jesus is our king, we don't resist an evil person, we practice nonviolence. If Jesus is our king, we don't hate our enemies, we love our enemies because God loves his enemies. If Jesus is our king, we don't give to impress people, we don't pray to impress people, we don't fast to impress people. We give because our Father has been generous with us. We pray because we enjoy spending time with our Father. We fast so we can feast on God. If Jesus is our king, we don't amass lots of stuff on earth because we recognize the things that we want most in life can't be bought with money. If Jesus is our king, we're not anxious. We set aside our anxiety to put our energy towards advancing the rule and reign of Jesus, building his kingdom here. If Jesus is our king, we don't judge those around us. We love everyone and we prioritize correcting our sins, making ourselves more like Christ. If Jesus is our king, we ask and we seek and we knock because we know our Father loves to give good gifts. And if Jesus is our king, we do to others what we would want done for us. Another deep sigh. Matthew 5 through 7. Can you believe it took me two summers to get through all that? And I just reviewed it that quickly. We could have we saved so much time. <coughs> okay, so quick review. Gospel is the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus. And it is good news for the entire world, namely because he is king. He is dissolving the kingdom that is. It is broken and it's full of racism and poverty and sickness and war and disease. And he's reestablishing his true kingdom. Kingdom, in the words of Dallas Willard, is God reigning. It is present wherever what God wants done is done. It is the range of God's effective will. It is when we submit to his kingship and we set aside our attempt to take the throne of the, our lives and of the world. And finally, a disciple is a kingdom citizen acting as though Jesus is their king by living like he lived and loving like he loved. Living such a life becomes a foretaste of the kingdom of Jesus fully realized on earth. It gives people a little picture of what it's going to be like when Jesus is king. All right, everybody caught up. Now we can get to Matthew chapter 8. Uh, I feel like anybody else just like, man, my brain needs to rest after all that. That's a lot. Yeah, it's a lot. So Matthew chapter 8, verses 1 through 4. When Jesus came down from the mountainside, large crowds followed him. Which mountainside is he leaving here? What came right before this? The Sermon on the Mount. He's coming down from that section where he outlines this is what it looks like to live as a kingdom person. This is what it looks like to live as a kingdom citizen. And large crowds are following him, and a man with leprosy came and knelt before him and said, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. And Jesus reached out his hand, touched the man, and said, I am willing, be clean. Immediately he was cleansed of his leprosy, and then Jesus said to him, don't tell anyone. Isn't that weird? We'll talk about it. But go, show yourself to the priest, and offer the gift Moses commanded as a testimony to them. Now, Matthew is now moving into an extended section about the reality of God's kingdom 
touching down in our world and on our earth, and the direct effect of that is healing in people and for people. So Matthew 1 through 4, he's like, here's the king, here's the kingdom. Matthew 5 through 7, this is what it looks like to live as citizens of that kingdom, to live with Jesus as your king. And now we're going to move into Matthew chapter 8, and Matthew is going to do an extended, Matthew 8 and 9 are just healing story after healing story after healing story, as he says, this is what it looks like when the king's kingdom touches down, everything that's broken in the kingdom that is starts to get repaired. Now, I grew up in evangelical churches that felt very uncomfortable with the healing power of God. If you took medicine and you got healed, great. But if you prayed for somebody and they got healed, it just made us feel a little bit uncomfortable. Uh, we often saw extremes where people manipulated the healing power of God to get money or give false hope to desperate people. There were some churches down the street from me where I grew up where they would be like, this preacher's got a special anointing and he wipes the sweat when he preaches on these rags and then we'll sell these rags for 150 bucks each and if you keep this sweaty rag, it'll heal you. And I'm like, that's pretty manipulative. I don't see that in scripture, you know, like... Um, and so I think a lot of times we were so turned off by some of the ways that people have misused God's ability to heal that we just kind of were like, nah, we're not going to talk about healing at all. God's not going to do that. We threw out any hope of supernatural healing with the proverbial bathwater. If God wants to heal people, though, and people need healing, why should we stand in the way just because some people have abused it? Throughout the New Testament, Jesus heals in and through the church, throughout the New Testament, and even church history, we see people pray, lay their hands on people, and anoint them with oil. Now, this doesn't mean that they don't use doctors. Um, there's always extremes where people are like, well, I just pray, and I don't use a doctor. Well, do you, you just pray for food, and you don't eat? No, you, you use what you can, and then you pray for what you can't. Luke was a physician, after all, and he wrote the Gospel of Luke and the Book of Acts. Believing that God can heal doesn't mean that you don't go to a physician or you don't take your medicine or you don't do what you can. It just means that you ask God to do what physicians couldn't. And you see that throughout church history. And as brilliant as medical professionals are, and as far as science has come, there are still some things that the best treatments in the world can't heal, that the most expensive medications can't fix, that the smartest minds can't solve. And the first thing Matthew wants us to know before he goes into this passage about all these encounters with Jesus healing and setting right the things broken in the dark kingdom we live in, the first thing Matthew wants us to know is that Jesus is a willing healer. He starts with this story in a very provocative sense. He's arranged these healing stories, not necessarily in chronological order. If you look at the other Gospels, he's arranged them in order to drive home a point. And the first question that he has the first person ask uh, in this first story he puts first is, are you willing? Can you make me clean? And Matthew wants us to think about that. Do we have a God in Jesus? Do we have a king who is willing to heal what's broken in our lives? Now, the fact that Matthew wants us to know that Jesus is a willing healer immediately sends a thousand broken rungs that I can think of rushing to my mind, a thousand sicknesses that need divine healing to intervene, and none has come. And I can't help but think, if Jesus is so willing, why hasn't he healed that? Or why hasn't he healed this? Or why isn't he healing that over there? I think of my friends and my family members with a broken marriage, and I'm like, if you're a willing healer, heal that. 
or a broken body, and I'm like, if you're a willing healer, why don't you heal them? Or a broken heart, and I'm like, just heal. Like, I know, like, you can heal. You say you're willing, do it. I think of a city with so much systematic brokenness, like Philly, in the form of poverty and crime and racism and gun violence. So why hasn't these things been healed? I don't know. Like, I would really love to be like, oh, here's specifically what's happening in each of these scenarios, but we're not given that, and I don't know that. And if I guessed, I often could say something that's wrong and that deepens or worsens the hurt. But I know this. This is what Matthew wants us to know. Jesus is a willing healer, and the hands of the king are hands of healing. So throughout this series, I want to ask you to do something that feels uncomfortable for me because of my background and being very much like, Oh, healing? Mm-mm, no, we're not. We're just going to stick with the Bible. Let's not talk about that. Um, I want to invite you over this next week, write down on a card, put it in an envelope, write down something that needs to be healed. Maybe it's a broken heart. Maybe it's a physical ailment. Maybe it's for a family member. Maybe it's something in your city, your neighborhood, your workplace, for a friend, whatever. Write it down on a card, seal up the envelope, and I want you to pray over it as we go through this series this summer and ask the willing, willing healer to heal it. And then if he heals it, when he heals it, let's celebrate it together. Um, so this week, take a few minutes, write something down in an envelope, pray over it. And I'm just going to be honest. I cut this out of my sermon a couple of times because I'm like, this makes me feel uncomfortable. I don't like it. You know, it's not really like my faith tradition that I was brought up in. And I'm like, what if God doesn't heal what you ask? Like, is it going to weaken your faith? What if something outlandish happens? And I'm like, ooh, this makes me feel uncomfortable. I'm full of all kinds of what ifs. And so I kept cutting this out, and then I kept putting it back in. So it's here now. I don't want to stand in the way of if Matthew says Jesus is a willing, willing healer, let's ask him to heal. And so when you write something in an envelope this week, seal it up, and just pray over it. Willing healer, we are willing Jesus, please come and heal these things. And let's see what happens. Now, perhaps the most curious part of the story, though, the part that probably caught your attention was, Jesus heals this guy. It's a miraculous healing. And what does he say? What did Jesus tell the leper? Don't tell anyone, anyone, which seems so weird, right? Why didn't Jesus want anyone to know about him? Why did Jesus tell him not to tell anyone? Wouldn't want, he want him to go and celebrate his miracle? I think this version of the story in Mark 1 is helpful in understanding this. Uh, Jesus commands him not to tell anyone, but the man goes ahead and tells any, everyone anyways. In Mark chapter 1, verse 45, Jesus went out, began to talk freely, or sorry, this man then, after Jesus commands him, same leper um, in Mark's account says, goes out and begins to talk freely about it and to spread the news so that Jesus could no longer openly enter a town, but he had to go out to desolate, lonely places, and people were coming to him from every direction. Fame got in the way of what Jesus was trying to accomplish. Jesus was like, don't tell anybody because all these people are going to come out and I won't be able to travel freely anymore. If his miracles were widely known, they would attract so much attention and create so much excitement about Uh, His movement that his movements would be inhibited. He could no longer openly enter a town He had to go out to desert places. He couldn't travel into the places where people were He could no longer move about as he wished now This is all because he did most of his ministry in Israel 
Contrast this with the story of a man who is possessed by demons in Matthew chapter 8. And Jesus tells him, that guy um, says, Jesus, I'm going to follow you. And Jesus says, no, no, no. Go back to your own country, travel around to all the towns, and tell them about me and what I did for you. Why the complete difference? Well, Jesus didn't mostly travel to Gentile towns. It, it was a land that Jesus visited once in the Gospels and only briefly. It would not hinder his movements there if everyone knew about it because he was not planning to stay there. So in Israel, he was like, keep it under wraps. I got to travel around. And I got to do stuff to do. Uh, I have stuff to do. Outside of Israel, he was like, spread the news. Tell everyone. What I find inside Israel, what we see oftentimes in the story of Jesus is people often want the power but not the person of Jesus. The story people tell about their encounter with Jesus affected what kind of person they ended up bringing to Jesus. A lot of people were coming to see him to get a show, not worship a savior. They were coming to be entertained, not become a disciple. And Jesus was never impressed by the crowds. He was always impressed by people serious about joining him and his mission to heal the world. And that's a question we have to ask ourselves today, right? We have to ask ourselves, why are we coming to Jesus? Or why are we coming to church? Why are we pursuing him? Are we coming to catch a glimpse of something exciting? Are we here for the show? Are we here for the music? Music is great, Marissa. But if that's the only reason we're here, are we just coming to get some kind of spectacle? Or are we here to be with Jesus, to become like Jesus, and to do what he did? People love spectacles. Jesus loves people. It's way too easy for churches to love crowds and hate individuals. Jesus loves individuals, not just numbers. He loves names. He loves you. Our standard model of doing church in America would attract the same people who would come out to see Jesus' miracles, but didn't want to implement his teachings on loving their enemies. You know, when there is a car accident, there's two types of people who stop. One are the people who stop to gawk, to look at the, sh the show, to see the tragedy. And then the second type of person is first responders who come to heal. Jesus isn't interested in gathering gawkers. He's interested in commissioning healers. And in Matthew chapters 8 and 9, as we'll get to over the next few weeks, Jesus over and over again heals, 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 heals all these broken things in the world. And then in chapter 10, he concludes this healing section by sending out his followers who have seen his healing to spread his healing into the world. This is what it looks like to become disciples, people of peace and agents of love. We pick up our Savior's work of healing the broken kingdom and giving a foretaste, a glimpse, a, a future look at what his full kingdom looks like. We work to heal the world and the people in it. So, as we kick off Act 3 of the Gospel of Matthew, I want to encourage you to do three things this week. Already, you know, write down something in your envelope to pray about. But also do these three things. One, Pray for the willing healer to do something in your life or your world. It could be something in your envelope or something else, something for a family member or friend. But ask him, if he's a willing healer, let's ask him to heal something. Two, spend some time examining why you come to church or why you pursue Jesus or why you're even interested in faith or Christianity. Do you want to join in his mission to heal the world? Or are you just looking for something for yourself? And three... I want you to think of a time that you feel like you saw or experienced or heard about some supernatural healing happening. I started like digging through my life history and thinking back and I was like, yeah, 
wasn't that one person, like, they were supposed to die, and then the doctors were all confused because suddenly they were healed. And I remember as a kid being like, well, that was weird. And so, like, think back to some of these stories where you feel like you saw or experienced or heard about some supernatural healing. And I want you to share that story with someone this week. So, let's pray. Lord Jesus, you say you're a willing healer. And so we invite you to come and heal the broken places in our lives, in our hearts, in our minds, in our bodies, in our communities, in our families. Um, God, you say you can heal and you're willing. And so we invite you. God, forgive me for so often. I just don't ask because I'm like, that makes me uncomfortable. Some people misuse that. Some people get into weird places with that. So you know what? I'm just going to focus on these things. I'm going to focus on the spiritual disciplines and learning scripture instead. And God, why am I passing up opportunities for you to heal just because I feel that. Yeah.